This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business and globalization and the effects these developments have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent times. Today on the show, uh, we will be talking to Sanchoy Das, Professor of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering at New York, excuse me, New Jersey Institute of Technology in the US and author of the book Fast Fulfillment, The Machine That Changed Retailing. So this is a, a very timely publication given the way so many businesses around the world have embraced online retail to survive and thrive through the period of the COVID pandemic. Uh, and that has fueled in many ways new thinking and new strategies among retailers regarding the place of online retail in their business models. So, and today as well, a little bit different. So I'm, I'm joined by two colleagues of mine who are going to help me to um, discuss these issues with uh, uh, Sanchoy. So I'm joined by um, David Ogilvy, my colleague from the Society for the Advancement of Consulting Special Interest Group. And David is with uh, David Ogilvy Associates in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, welcome, David. Thank you, Patrick. And also joined by uh, Diane Garcia at Lorraine uh, Consulting in Portland and Oregon. So welcome, Diane. Good morning, Patrick, David, Sanchoy. And then, of course, very special welcome to Sanchoy, our guest for today. Welcome. All of you, I'm so happy and so excited to be here on this uh, podcast with you folks uh, and looking to talk about fast fulfillment. Great, thanks. Uh, looking forward to it as well. So, we, we, you know, we spoke uh, a couple of months ago, maybe, Sanchoy, about the kind of general uh, move towards uh, e-commerce. And today we're going to dig a bit deeper into some of the concepts you have in the in the book. Um, so maybe we, we'll just start by saying, you know, fast fulfillment um, what is it we're talking about when we say fast fulfillment and what makes it fast? How fast is fast fulfillment? Okay. So all of us are ordering products online, a variety of services. We are ordering straight from online. So why we order online, it depends on how quickly it gets to us. Uh, so if I can order something and it arrives to me tomorrow, I'm really happy. But if it's going to come two weeks from now, I'm not gonna order it online. So a lot of this fulfillment, which is occurring in the e-commerce space is dependent on the speed with which you can deliver these items. And not all retailers have this ability. Yes, they have a website, they have a wonderful catalog, nice pictures, but when somebody hits that button, submit order, things occur too slowly. And the next time I ain't ordering from that retailer. But when you go to something like Amazon, the moment I click that submit order, literally within minutes, some warehouse somewhere in the US, wheels are grinding and your order is moving. And you get that wonderful message at the end of the day, your order has been shipped. So it is quite remarkable that you can order a $2 product for free shipping, and it shows up in your door the next day. That is what this book is all about, how that happens. And you talk about um, pivot factors uh, and pivot factors, those factors that influence people's decision to switch from store shopping to uh, online shopping. So um, um, what is what are the main pivot factors? Um, uh, and in terms of, of, of speed, um, what threshold um, does it, does it take to get across for people to make that switch from store to online shopping? Okay. Now, the first pivot factor is price. Okay. So people generally assume that obviously if I go to the store, I get a nice price, I get a sale, I get a clearance, etc. Historically, when we order things through the mail or online, there was this mysterious shipping and handling charge, which really 
took the price to another level. So he dissuaded people from going there. In, I think, 2005, six, an amazing thing occurred. Amazon started Prime membership. And Prime membership gave you free shipping. So in one instant, this pivot point activated and a whole bunch of people, including myself, suddenly started ordering things online because I didn't have to pay for shipping and handling. So that took off the price pivoting point. And the second one was speed. I need convenience, I need utility, and I need the utility as soon as possible. Obviously, if I need something within 15 minutes, I'm not gonna order it online. I mean, I just walk to the store and get it. But if I'm willing to wait 24 hours, maybe 48 hours, I start pivoting. And so that is, was a big trend. And as you got speed and that timeline became smaller, retailers suddenly found droves of people running away from the store and sitting in their pajamas and ordering all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And what causes them to shift? Is it if I get it in five days, if I get it in three days, if I get it in two, one day? You know, what, what, where, is the, where is the massive shift? So if I'm designing um, an e-fulfillment machine for the future, where do I need to be on that spectrum of time? That is a perfect question. And the reason is that the answer is not specific. It depends on the kind of product that you're ordering. So there are certain products, the threshold point or the pivot point is one day. I need it tomorrow. Then there is another set of products that I can wait for maybe two or three days. Uh, so there are very few products where that threshold point is more than maybe five days. So anywhere between the zero to five. Remember that uh, there is a lot of uh, delivery which is occurring same day. Amazon has these facilities particularly office supplies and stuff like that. So we would have it same day. So like in my university, we had in the past a huge uh, office supply uh, inventory within the campus. Now that inventory is zero. We order everything online and the supplier guarantees same day delivery into my office. So in those cases, it is same day. Uh, people are ordering a variety of products like clothes and all. They're okay with 48 hours. So that is the threshold that, that we would get. So uh, Diane, what kind of um, questions come up in your mind listening to um, Sanchoy describe the, the pivot points, the speed, uh, fast fulfillment and all of those concepts? Well, I think as I was, as you were talking, Sanchoy, I mean, the obviously the speed is key. And I think during the pandemic, a lot of that has shifted over. Uh, do people need it faster or people just are, are less comfortable in person and in stores? And that was another pivot point uh, during this time frame to encourage online shopping. Um, so, I mean, is that something that you've seen in, in the last? I mean, clients that I've worked with are definitely seeing that. Uh, okay. Their e-commerce has shot up in, in significantly in the last two years. Okay. So actually, there was a, a third pivot point, which I did not mention, but because it is a hidden pivot point. It's habit. So we know there is convenience in online. We know there is price advantage in, uh, in online. But I'm just in the habit of going to the store, going to the grocery store. I go to shopping uh, on Fridays, etc. It was a habit. The pandemic came and woke me up and said, I can get rid of that habit. So because of the pandemic, I ordered some things online. And then I realized very quickly, what the heck? That was a bad habit I had. I had to keep going to the store. I love it now. I just do stuff uh, from home. And so that was a hidden thing which came. And you know that habit is more like a, a psychological kind of stuff. It is not in the engineering part of it. So this was something that just the pandemic came and it changed that psychology. And that is why people realize I can order stuff online and if you see the expansion of online buyers the age groups are going up as you know the millennials uh, they think going to the store is some kind of uh, you know prehistoric uh, behavior but the 
you know, other people who didn't go online is just exploded. A grocery online, if you look at the numbers there, it is just phenomenal. The people people are ordering all kinds of stuff, of eggplant, tomatoes, on online. So that is a huge explosion. And once we get more speed, you're going to see even more people ordering it online. What do you yeah, I'd agree with Sancho in many of the things that he said, but one question I do have for you is, do you think this is an American phenomenon? Because living in, in Australia, for example, we are so far away from the rest of the world, we don't experience those, those that speed that you talk about. We don't experience that sort of um, <clears throat> uh, availability from, 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 from Amazon. Okay, this is a, again a very important, uh, you know, progressive question. What is happening is this fulfillment machine, as you rightfully point out, is concentrated in North America. There is a huge fulfillment machine infrastructure here. Remember that these facilities are not cheap. They're extremely capital intensive operations, a lot of IT, a lot of uh, you know, equipment in there, et cetera, but they are uh, expanding and they are going into Europe and they will arrive in Australia, et cetera. Uh, just before the pandemic, I spent a six month sabbatical in Italy, okay? And Italy is the center of artisanal products, artisanal goods, wonderful pastas, homemade tomato sauces, et cetera. They were expanding more and more um, Amazon uh, class of facility. And there are other companies doing similar kinds of things. And I could see in the university, the students, et cetera, were already pivoting to this online behavior. Obviously, the elderly population in Italy was not pivoting at a very fast rate, but at the younger rate, it is occurring. Uh, what you will see in the news, and it, that in many economies, uh, people, because they know what happens with the fulfillment machine, uh, they are used, trying to use like regulations and other kinds of uh, governmental barriers. Because at the end of the day, some small business, some local business is going to be affected. But I feel it's a zero-sum game. Uh, an inefficient local business will disappear. An efficient local business will pop up. Fulfillment by Amazon is an amazing thing. Hundreds of thousands of small businesses have popped up all over the US. These businesses could not have popped up without fulfillment by Amazon. And it's going to happen. I guess you mentioned how expensive fast fulfillment is, and I guess the reason for that is because you have these fulfillment centers full of order pickers who are people who have to be paid a salary. Now, you talk about the natural laws of fulfillment and why traditional warehouse designs will never be able to deliver fast fulfillment. And then you want to talk about S fulfillment strategies and O fulfillment strategies. So could you explain to us what, what, what those are and why it is that, that traditional warehouse designs are not going to be able to win in this game? Okay, excellent question. So first, I, uh, and I see two parts in it. First, I talk about the warehouses. See, most traditional warehouses, and I have visited many, many warehouses. Warehousing is a very old industrial operation, particularly here in the US. We have large networks of warehouses. Warehouses were designed with two purposes. One, they were designed to hold inventory 
in bulk quantities for relatively long times. So we had pallets of uh, diapers sitting there. So I had 50 pallets of diapers some, and the diapers would sit there for maybe several weeks before they moved on to the next part of the supply chain. Uh, the second, the warehouses were designed for labor efficiency. So they were designed that you know we, we could operate this warehouse with a few number of people. So we got orders in, we made a plan, this is what we're going to do during the whole week, etc. Now these fulfillment warehouses are quite different. They are designed to hold small in unit quantities of inventory. So the, the, the diaper is split into little into, into individual packets all over the warehouse, and they are designed for speed. So because they, when they get that order, they get the order at 8 a.m. and they want it into some box by 11 a.m. So these traditional warehouses are not designed for this kind of uh, operation. It's not their fault. They were designed for a different objective and they're doing fantastically in that objective. But a fulfillment warehouse is a different. Other is they are designed to hold inventory for relatively short times. <clears throat> they don't want something to be sitting there for, for months on end. In fact, in a lot of these uh, fulfillment warehouses like Amazon warehouses, if you are selling through Amazon and your inventory is not moving, and it's just taking up space, uh, they will ship it back to you. Because they say, you, you know, you have too much of stuff here and it doesn't look like it is selling. The second question I'm gonna talk about is that S fulfillment that you have rightly pointed out. And in fact, this is a little worrisome for me. What has happened is many retailers, and they are you know, in the US and everywhere in the world, retailers, their most valuable asset is their stores. I have 100 stores in over the United States. This is my capital investment. I've built these wonderful stores. And now people want online. So what they are trying to do is they are using the inventory in the store to fulfill that online order. So that is what I call store-based fulfillment or S-fulfillment. And the good news is it allowed them to build that e-commerce uh, footprint. So I had this website, I have the inventory in the store. Now I fill it from there. The problem is when you have zero shipping and handling uh, charges, your shipping and handling cost is not zero. Somebody in the store, a store associate goes and you ordered this you know, $10 uh, you know, you know, sweatpants. Somebody went, picked it up from the, looked for your size, looked for your color. They spent 15, 20 minutes to pick it up, put it in a box and ship it for you all for free. You do that once, you do that tw twice, okay. You do that a million times, you're just adding up cost to your precarious financial situation. So S-fulfillment is happening. And in fact, Walmart is shipping a lot from S-fulfillment. I don't know whether in the long run, economically, it can survive. 93.9, Dublin South FM. And then in terms of the, the natural laws of fulfillment, you're talking about the, the physical reality of order picking that makes it inefficient to do that in a store-based operation. Is that correct? Absolutely. In the store, it's just not possible. If, I, if you start putting, if you, if you visit a store, which a grocery store particular, which is doing online, um, you know, order picking, you as a customer are bumping into these people who are basically behaving like warehouse workers. You know, they're pushing you and you're pushing them because they're also on a speed to get the same can of tomatoes because some person somewhere has ordered this and it's, it's, it's not an efficient operation. The store is designed for customers, not for uh, industrial order pickers here. David, what do you think? Well, I, I think it's uh, quite um, topical in many ways because I've actually got a client at the moment who is struggling with um, uh, delivering to their omni-channel um, strategy. So they have uh, multiple different channels that try they're trying to service. And the current infrastructure within the business and within the systems that we're using 
uh, doesn't naturally lend to servicing different masters. So there, there is a, there's a lot of, to what, what Sancho is saying around that sort of thing. It, it creates a lot of um, uh, tension within the business and is probably the best way of saying it uh, for those that are trying to, to compete with Amazon because Amazon in many ways has been built from the ground up for a particular style. And like I mean, it has only really ever been built to service the one-to-one customer, so the single pick type arrangement. So all of the infrastructure that they put in place has been designed to deal with that. Whereas in a manufacturer, for example, they are trying to service um, um, direct to, customer, to consumer. They are still trying to service the direct to store or to direct to distributor, uh, depending on on their on their business model. So you know many businesses are challenged at the moment with this omni-channel um, servicing. Excellent point, David. This is what is happening. As you said, Amazon built a singly focused channel, so they excelled in it. So now other businesses are omni-channel, they're serving multiple channels, and they're doing good in the multiple channels, but they're not excelling in any of them. And that's the the problem, because they're trying to mix it all all up into one channel. Correct. And often there are conflicting demands uh, that need to be serviced. And so somewhere in the business, they have to make a a choice, and it's usually in the warehouse, about which orders get priority or, you know, uh, back to your point about costs and the cost of servicing, um, which is, again, a metric that I don't think is used enough, cost to serve a customer, um, you know, that can be pushed quite high in in, in one particular channel because of of the constraints within that channel. Diane, your thoughts? Well, I would totally agree. I have a client actually now looking to see how they can compete uh, in terms of their e-commerce channel. So they are traditionally a manufacturing and distribution uh, client and uh, e-commerce saw such an increase that they did an analysis on do they retrofit pieces of their warehouse or do they outsource to a 3PL? And what are the costs associated to each of these things? So there's quite a bit of hidden costs I find in here. And a lot of uh, questions exactly like Sancho pointed out, which is uh, how do you move from the bulk to uh, individual piece uh, you know, distribution or fulfillment to these uh, e-commerce clients? So it's a, it's a very interesting, like David said, topical uh, uh, question here that uh, clients today are dealing with every, you know, manufacturing distribution customers are dealing with. Not, not to mention the, the constraints of the last mile, actually getting it to the consumer. Like, I mean, I know here in Australia, for example, um, there, there, there are significant um, constraints, A, from the current supply chain challenges or, or constraints um, and, uh, with containers and ships and all those sorts of things. Uh, that's, that, that slows the speed down. And within our own country, uh, our own distribution uh, companies like Australia Post, and we don't use FedEx quite so much, but DHL and all those other people who are servicing the e-commerce business, um, they are, their, their channels are chock-a-block at the moment. Australia Post is months behind. Actually, Sancho, you you talk in the book about uh, crowdsource delivery for last mile fulfillment. So who are the main platforms in in that space? And is this really a winning strategy for the future, these type of platforms for last mile um, fulfillment? Yes, we are seeing a, a, a an ex- considerable expansion in the last mile. As both uh, David and Diane pointed out, last mile is actually one of the big challenges which is occurring right now. Even in the U.S., we are almost at max capacity. Actually, we are beyond max capacity. And if you consider, uh, and, and Diane obviously has seen that, that the gray Amazon Prime delivery trucks, 
which were rare maybe 24 months ago, they are now as frequent as the brown UPS and the white and purple FedEx trucks. So we have built, literally built one complete new last mile infrastructure. And even that is not enough. So we are going to see considerable expansion. And that expansion is coming from this crowdsourced delivery. So if you look at Uber and uh, DoorDash and a lot of these crowdsourced delivery companies, uh, a lot of their growth in recent times has come from this last mile delivery that they are delivering. And remember that restaurant deliveries are equivalent to last mile delivery. I mean, if somebody is delivering a food package from a restaurant or your shoes, it's the same thing. At the end of the day, it's a package being delivered to your door. And even that chain is reaching um, capacity in the sense that there are, at some point there, there is no crowd left to source. I mean, everybody who wants to be an Uber driver is already uh, uh, an Uber driver. So we are reaching a lot of those uh, capacities in those kind of uh, areas. Uh, in other parts of the world though, that particular infrastructure, the crowdsourced one, probably is going to be the, the the asset which will most come into play because the more bigger assets like you know uh, having a, a, a expansion in DHL or, or a postal service is a lot more expensive formal kind of business but you can expand the the crowdsource and you're going to see more of that mm. and back inside the distribution centers or the fulfillment centers I think we've probably all seen with our clients a huge increase in interest and demand for uh, automation right. are there are different classes of automation depending on the intelligence and the, the motion complexity involved as you pointed out in, in the book Sanchoy. and you speak about alpha sigma and gamma type um automation so what, what what are these and what kind of automation is currently being deployed in fast fulfillment centers okay excellent question see now most of us are familiar with automation where some kind of automatic device replaces a human okay so there is a person who was uh, taping a box now there is a machine which tapes that box that is an example of alpha automation basically some automatic device is replacing a human operator so a bottle filling machine etc these are all alpha automation then we had started to have uh, automatic devices which have some degree of intelligence some degree of control and then we have finally the sigma automation where there are lots of intelligence combined into that automation so you have like you know kiva robots etc if you go to the amazon warehouse and you see these kiva robots yeah the robot is, is a productivity device it moves stuff around but there is a tremendous amount of intelligence built into that entire system because they have these thousands of uh, Kiva robots in this warehouse. A controller is making all these intelligent decisions and moving them uh, to different, different points. So a lot of companies which want to get into e-commerce, et cetera, they have to adopt either through a consulting firm, a technology firm, and in, if possible, organically, all of these intelligence to update their systems, even controlling the quantities of inventory that they're holding in one particular store or area. And Dave, you uh, working in the ERP space, you know, I've seen them, um, you know, SAP and these guys are building now modules like warehouse control systems that will control automation in warehouses, more and more demand for that, you know, like controlling auto stores or Kiva type robots or shuttle type systems or mini loads and so on. So what's your what's your your, your thoughts on that? What are you seeing or, or what's your reflection on what Sancho has just said? There's always, there's always been a, um, a constraint there, Patrick, in that. 
Um, <clears throat> the integration between the controllers for the aut automated um, tools in the warehouse and, and the ERP, because th th that is generally the source of the order. Right? And there needs to be a lot of um, quite complex um, integration at times between the two different systems, because the, the ERP is obviously not built to, to run those sorts of uh, automated uh, retrieval systems in the warehouse, those sorts of things. Uh, in the past, it's done a lot of, um, you know, handheld device picking and 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 uh, uh, route planning, picking routes and those sorts of things. Uh, but this is getting into the realm of, of, of the, that the, it spans past what, what ERP is meant to do. So that then in introduces the, the additional risk of having to integrate with these systems. They are, those integrations can be quite expensive uh, at times. Uh, they can be very clunky at times, like a lot of these sorts of automation. So there is, there is a lot of uh, space here, I think, for improvement. Uh, now, whether the ERP systems want to take that on or not is another matter. It, it comes back to who's going to fund that. And in the past, that's always been the client. Okay. Diane, what, what are your thoughts on automation? What are you seeing? Well, I, I think the biggest piece of uh, automation my clients are doing today has to do with the data side of things and how do they you know, capture data from their uh, customers? How do they integrate that data with, like David mentioned, with their ERP system? So a lot of it is how do you use the data? How do you find the data? How do you make sense of the data? And I was wondering, Sanchoy, do you talk about that in your book and, and how that you know, how Amazon maybe perfected that or how other uh, manufacturing distribution companies can perfect that? Again, an excellent point. Actually, in the book, towards the, the latter part of it, I do talk about data, streaming data, etc. And Amazon is a data machine. The, every piece of uh, transactional data is being exploited somehow in their operations. Now, one of the things in fast fulfillment is to achieve the speed, it's not just a physical machine. In Within integrated into that machine is how the data is being exploited to position systems. So if you think about a supply chain, at the end of the day, physically, a supply chain is inventory located at different points in the network. Okay, that's what you have in a supply chain. So what they use the data to position that inventory. What particular SKU item is located in a particular warehouse is all being driven by data. And it is not being driven by data which is 12 months or 24 months old. It is usually driven by data which is only five or six days old. So there, the assumption in fast fulfillment is behaviors, trends and all change much frequently and dynamically. So a lot of the long-term planning which was possible before is becoming less and less valuable. And so these companies are using data as you probably are seeing your clients do. They're capturing data, running the analytics and they're immediately taking decisions literally within the next few days to reposition, the holiday season is coming up, the new year is coming up, a new variant has come into the coronavirus, how does that change demand, so on and so forth. It's interesting, um, maybe it just gives us time for one last question in relation to uh, demand patterns. So <clears throat> I think in the past we were probably used to these kind of streamlined um, um, demand uh, patterns and flow processes. Whereas now, as you described it, we're, we're having more uh, Brownian um, flow processes, which are more randomized. So are, are demand patterns becoming more Brownian, more randomized? Uh, why is that happening? And, and what are the implications of that? 
One of the most exciting concepts I talk about in the book is the end of the normal distribution. Our entire academic system is based on the normal distribution. There is an average customer and we design everything for this average customer and everybody around that statistical distribution. They are important to us, but not as important. The, the average customer is everybody. You like a, a hamburger, this is what we provide. We, we don't give you any options. The fulfillment machine says, it's, it's a democracy, everybody is important. You are three sigma away from the mean, you are also important. There are only two people in the world who will buy indigo polka dot socks. We have that in inventory and we will ship it to you, even though there are only four people in the entire world who are going to buy that. So that is what is happening. If you had these supply chains, which were focused on one type of, or a set of attractive products, the fulfillment machine is brownie and everybody. So I like to eat cereal. Every week I change my cereal flavor, 52 weeks in the year. So now that the fulfillment machine caters for me. Interesting. So well, we're, unfortunately we're, we're beaten by the clock again, which always uh, happens here. So, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk to you again, Sancho, and there's some really uh, interesting and uh, thought provoking um, concepts there. So thank you to uh, Sancho. Thank you to uh, David Ogilvy for joining us from, from Brisbane. And thank you to Di Diane Garcia joining us from Portland and, and Oregon. Uh, so wish you all um, every success personally and professionally in the future. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very much. Thanks also to our, our listeners for tuning in. And for any comments or questions, just drop me a line on pdaily at albalogistics.com. Now keep well and stay safe until next time.